0: Hey guys, it's Emma and Shannon
1: and welcome back to our podcast. She's an engineer in this episode. We're going to talk through a very brief history of women in engineering. I think it's kind of interesting to see chronologically um, what has happened over the past decades and, and centuries and look back on how far we have come as women in engineering and also how much further we need to go. So we'll talk through starting pre-1870. In 1854, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony presented a petition with over 10,000 signatures demanding suffrage and women's rights to property to the New York legislature. And in 1869, the U.S. Congress adopted the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees voting rights for all citizens regardless of color, but did not guarantee voting rights to women. So I think right around this time, women's suffrage was when a lot of women um, started to go into engineering and started to pursue their passions. Pre-1870, women who had engineering skill sets became inventors and creators, but it wasn't until 1876 when the first woman, Elizabeth Bragg, received an engineering degree from a U.S. university, and Elizabeth graduated with a degree in civil engineering from UC Berkeley, and her thesis was titled A Solution of a Particular Problem in Serving, And after graduating, unfortunately, she did not go into the engineering field. She became a teacher until she was married a few years later. And after getting married, she retired from teaching and became a full-time mother and homemaker until 1929 when she passed away. So although she didn't go into engineering, this was still a major turning point for women who uh, who decided to go into a STEM field. A few years later, in 1883, Emily Roebling, who we've talked about before in one of our Remarkable Women in STEM episodes, oversaw the completion of the Brooklyn Bridge. And over the past few years, Emily had taken over the construction management side of the Brooklyn Bridge project since her husband, John Roebling, fell ill with decompression sickness. And Emily was not recognized for all of her Construction management slash engineering work until a century later in 1983. By 1890, the U.S. Census listed 21 women engineers, but unfortunately, there's not much more information beyond that. But it's still it's still really interesting that that by like before the 1900s there were 21 women in engineering, at least in the U.S., that were trailblazing. In 1893, Bertha Lame was considered the first woman electrical engineering graduate in the U.S., and she received her degree in mechanical engineering with a specialty in electricity from the Ohio State University. And she went on to work at Westinghouse Electric from 1893 to 1905 until she married and retired from the professional uh, field. In 1894, Lena Allen Strober qualified for membership in the American Society of Mining and Metallurgical Engineers. And she was the owner of the Silverton Mine in Silverton, Colorado, and Lena Allen Strober is considered the, f- the first woman mining engineer. During the same year, in 1894, Julia Morgan received a degree in civil engineering from UC Berkeley. And she went on to design over 700 buildings in her lifetime, most of them in California. And she's best known for her work on Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. In 1905, Marie Curie was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics for the discovery of radioactivity. And a few years later, in 1911, Marie was awarded a second Nobel Prize in Chemistry for her discovery and isolation of pure radium.
0: I think we've done an episode on her as well.
1: Yes. I believe she was in one of our remarkable women in STEM episodes. Yeah. Um, And then finally in 1920 women win the right to vote through the ratification of the 19th amendment. Woo. Yes. Uh, And in 1923, Anne Gertrude was the first woman to receive her PE in the United States or professional engineering license, and she was a practicing civil engineer in the state of Indiana. In 1938, General Electric announced that Catherine Blaggett had succeeded in developing a non reflecting invisible glass. Catherine, born in eighteen ninety eight, was a renowned female engineer who worked in molecular engineering. And her work with a monomolecular coatings led to enhancements in a number of devices, including eyeglasses and cell phone cameras. That's really interesting. Okay, um, and then after Catherine, during World War Two, women's participation in the workforce increased by nearly 60%. Um, As men went off to fight in the field, a lot of women took on working, uh, I guess, working jobs, blue and white-collar jobs, and in 1947, right after World War II, Edith Clark, who we've talked about in past episodes, became the first woman to teach at the university level at the University of Austin in Texas. And Edith was a, an electrical engineer known for her study on electricity transmission and the creation of the Clark calculator, which is the basis for the modern graphing calculator. And she was also the first woman to be employed as an engineer of in the U.S. S- supervisor for General Electric and college professor. And then by 1950, the Society of Women Engineers, or SWE, was formed. In 1952, Grace Marie Hopper completed her work on the first computer language compiler, the Flowmatic. And also in 1952, Katherine Johnson joined NASA, and she was born in 1918 and was a mathematician who joined NASA, uh, as I mentioned, in 1952, and Johnson is framed for developing calculations of orbital mechanics that made the 1969 moon landing possible. She is also one of the first black women to work for NASA and is featured in the Hidden Figures movie. In 1962, the first conference held in the United States, devoted exclusively to women in professional engineering, was held at our alma mater, the University of Pittsburgh, at the request of the President's Office of Emergency Planning. So, the Society of Women Engineer member Dorothy Ron and Emma Barth are members of the conference planning committee. SWE members Patricia Brown. Um, chairs the opening day luncheon and discussed a panel of members including SWE's vice president Eileen Kavanaugh, past president Patrice Hicks, and Emma Barth. In 1963, the statistics committee published its first profile of a woman engineer based on a member survey. And I thought this was kind of funny because the report found that the Average woman engineer of today in 1963 um, is between the age of 36 and 37 years old. She is equally likely to be married or single, but if she is married, she has three children. She is employed in an industry and earns a median salary of nine to ten thousand dollars per year. A college graduate, she has a bachelor's degree in engineering or one of the physical sciences and either has a degree or has taken specialized training related to her work. She is a member of one or more technical societies and she is unlikely to be a licensed professional engineer, which is a, yeah, a very interesting synopsis of the woman engineer in 1963.
0: It basically is saying that like, It contains, like, all demographics of women.
1: (laughs) Basically. I'm interested to see how that median salary compared to the men's at that time, though, because it was most likely Mm -hmm. a lot less. One year later, in 1964, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act bars discrimination in employment on the basis of race and sex.
0: Great. Okay, and then jumping forward to 1980. So in 1980 um, to 1994, actually, in this range, BS engineering degrees awarded to women increase by 45%. In 1981, um, a woman that we have talked about before in a previous Remarkable Women in STEM episode. Dr. Patricia Bath, she invents the laser phaco probe. She was an American ophthalmologist and inventor that was known for creating revolutionary technology for treating and removing cataracts. She was also the first African American doctor to obtain a medical patent. Jumping forward a few years to 1984, Sally Ride, who was the first American woman astronaut to go into space, is given honorary membership into SWE, or the Society of Women Engineers. And we also talked about her in the same episode with Dr. Patricia Bath. Mm Mm-hmm. Going way forward to 1999, Marissa Mayer starts to work at Google. Marissa Mayer, who was born in 1975, was the first female engineer to work at Google. And then she also later became the first woman to lead a Fortune 500 company after she became the CEO of Yahoo. Hmm. Yes. And then eight years later... SWE membership tops 20,000, so 20,000 members of SWE all around the US. And more recently, in 2019, now women make up 13% of the engineering workforce, which I'm sure is much more than before. Mm-hmm. Then, two years ago, in 2020, Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier are awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. So Jennifer Doudna is an American biochemist, and she won this award alongside her colleague, Emmanuel Charpentier, who is a French microbiologist. They won the award for inventing CRISPR, which is a revolutionary gene editing tool that can cure genetic diseases. And last year, in 2021, I don't know if you guys heard this on the news, but Dr. Timnit Gebru was named by Fortune as one of the world's 50 great leaders. So Dr. Timnit Gebru, who was born in 1982 in Ethiopia, is the co-founder of Black in AI and was formerly AI meaning artificial intelligence and was formerly the technical co-lead of the Ethical Artificial Intelligence team at Google. She is known for her research into reducing the harmful impacts of racial bias used in data to train artificial intelligence systems, and she resigned from her position at Google in December 2020. Wow. So, yeah. Look at all the strides we've made in the past two centuries, basically.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And we're up to 13% of the engineering workforce. And hopefully that'll increase moving forward. But it is really interesting to reflect back and talk about some of the firsts and just mention more of these women's names. So they become more and more well-known. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah, and hopefully I think we've even seen like the percentage of women in engineering in colleges change, even within the past like few years. I would say, I think they said like our school, the University of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, used to be like twenty five percent female and seventy five percent male, but when we were in school, I believe it was it was higher, like around the thirty percent female. Mm-hmm. Would you say? I would say yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, and then in like our respective fields, like I think my my field was like forty five percent female and fifty five percent male, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. Like going from like barely any women, only twenty one women that were in engineering prior to like the nineteen hundreds. Yeah going to, like, there are, like, many women studying engineering now.
1: Yeah, and tens of thousands of women working in the field, or at least members of the Society of Women Engineers.
0: There are also plenty of women who are working in the field that are not part of the Society of Women Engineers. Very true, So, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure the number of women is, is higher than the number that are part of the Society of Women Engineers. hmm Yes. Yeah. But... I think that's it for this episode.
1: Yeah, I think that sums it up. We know it was a little bit of a shorter episode, but we wanted to walk through some highlights in the history of women engineering. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, we will see you guys again in two weeks. And
0: like, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.